welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. Today I'm joined by Major Martin Cordner, probably best known for his compositions, but also has many, many other aspects to his life as we're going to discover today. So thank you very much, Martin, for joining us. A pleasure. Good to be here. And we heard uh, from you a few episodes ago in our analysis of Corpus Christi, so it's really nice now to do an interview to get to know you as a person. Great. A bit more. Thank you. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your early life, where were you born and grew up? Well, I was born in Chichester on the south coast of England uh, to Salvation Army officers, so I spent quite a lot of my early years moving around, you know, to different appointments. Um, I think the last count I'm on about house number 28 at the moment, something like that, because since becoming an officer myself I've had a few different houses, so I've definitely learned the truth about wherever you lay your hat, that's your home. Um, So that's my beginning. So yeah, born into a Salvation Army officer family and uh, known the Salvation Army from day one. Fantastic. And of course you learnt to play the cornet as part um, of your your upbringing. Um, Mm. What influenced you to learn the cornets in particular? Well, we were at Chalk Farm Corps at the time, and the, I, you know, the expected thing was once you got to seven, you would learn a brass instrument. You know, so I was pretty up for it. I think the guy that taught me was a guy by the name of Fred Osborne, who was um, at that time, so I'm talking about 1980, uh, an elderly gentleman, and he, he'll be in heaven now. But uh, I remember him as being a great encourager, and uh, yeah, he was the guy that got me started, along with a few others in, in Chalk Farm Corps at that time. Fantastic. And did the cornet choose you, or did you choose the cornet? It definitely chose me. I didn't have any choice at all, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and I can tell you, for 35 years since then, I've been trying to get off the jolly thing. But, um, yeah, I think probably my embouchure is more suited to another instrument. But I have enjoyed playing the cornet, and I've been able to do it reasonably well, which means I've been able to be part of a few different bands and, and uh, playing different groups, uh, which has been great. So, yeah, I still enjoy it, but I, probably an E-flat a frustrated E-flat bass player, to be honest with you. <laughs> and so you mentioned that you've played in some other bands. You played in the International Staff Band for a while. Could you tell us a little bit about the time you were in the band? Yeah, um, I, uh, I first applied to be in the band when Robert Redhead was uh, the bandmaster, so we're talking the early 90s. But actually a cornet vacancy didn't come up until 1997. And uh, so I joined the band then. Steve uh, was leading the band. He, he'd taken over in 94. My first weekend, we were playing, I think for the first time publicly, Isaiah 40, the first or the second time. We were all very nervous. Um, I remember Riz Ergen being on, on the programme as well with the, with the gaps that you don't want to play in. And as a new <laughs> player, you're just absolutely terrified. But, you know, I, I just... Um, there are two ways you can approach your first staff band weekend. You can either not play a note because you're so scared, or you can just give it everything. And I, I probably, as people will know about me, give it everything. And so I, I really enjoyed that weekend. I, I don't think I backed out too much, but yeah, that's where it all started for me, the staff band, 97. And I stayed in until the year 2000 when Leanne and I went into the training college to become officers. And have you got a particular highlight of your time in the band? Is there a concert or a moment that stands out to you? Yeah, we did the first partnership festival, I think it was 97, with Black Dyke Band. Uh, James Morrison actually was there as a soloist on that night. And that was, I can remember Steve referring to James Morrison as, in the best possible way, a freak of nature, which we (laughs) we all know that he really is. How does he do what he does? But on that stage with the ISB and Black Dyke, he played you know, 26 different instruments, some of them at the same time, and it was a great memory, great night. Fantastic. And as I mentioned earlier, um, you're probably best known for your compositions, perhaps, right, yeah. um, to those people that don't know you personally, just mm. seeing your name on the top right-hand corner. Yeah. Uh, when did you start to write music? Um, I started right about the age of 14 or 15. Um, I'd long had a fascination with how music works, really. I can remember as a child... I quite like to draw, so I would come home from watching Star Wars at the cinema because I'm old enough to have seen the (laughs) original uh, film in 1977 and coming home drawing pictures and um, drawing the spacecraft, but thinking to myself as a child, but how do I draw that? But, you know, I just, I wanted to draw that as well. So I think as a child I was always interested in the sounds I was hearing as well as the images I was seeing on a movie screen. And by the time I was 14, 15, I was pretty good on cornet and I could... I had access to the band room because my parents were the core officers. You know, I could look at scores and I just 
thought, you know, I'm going to have a go at trying to write something myself. So it came from that, really. And developing your craft, who was your biggest influence? Well, that's a good question. I don't think there's one particular composer, but I, I, I'm a child of pop culture, you know, because in my childhood, um, film scores had gone back to big orchestral scores with John Williams and things like that. So um, I love movies, and so my biggest influences would be guys like John Williams, Danny Elfman, Alan Silvestri. Um, and then within the Salvation Army world, Robert Redhead, for me, has been one of our most imaginative um, composers. Um, I still go back to Wolf Heaton as the master of brass band score. And guys like Leslie Condon, I never met uh, Les Condon. I moved to London just a few years after he was promoted to glory. But for me, his music's been so inspirational. So both pop culture, movie music, but also Salvation Army composers for me. And when you write music now, do you still have the same influences or are there any different influences you have as you write today? I think they're the same I, because my passion has been for those genres, I guess. I've stuck with them. Um, and people sometimes say to me, you know, music's so like film music and it's so descriptive. And I think I've got guys like Alan Silvestri <laughs> to thank. Uh, Bruce Broughton would be another one as well. Um, because I just find the music of the movies so compelling. And, and the music of the movies is there to tell a story, isn't it, of course? And I feel that's what Salvation Army music is all about as well. So I see a synergy there. So I think still the same inspirations today. Excellent. You mentioned earlier that you moved to London to go to the William Booth Training College mm. in 2000. Yeah. I believe were you part of the Cross Bearers mm. session? Excellent. That's correct. Ten points, oh, yeah. uh, Matthew. Yes, yeah. winning. <laughs> so how did you discover your calling to become... Uh, an officer and go into training yeah great question so I, again about the same age about 15 um, I think I'd known because different people had said to me you know you'll make a great officer quite, that happens quite often when you're 8 or 9 or 10 and it plants something in you and I can remember about the age of 15 being really frustrated with God and saying well look we're going to have to have this out I need to know is it just what people are telling me or is this something that you want me to do and I had a real tangible experience of God uh, at the age of 15, which just confirmed to me that he was real and uh, that he did have a plan for my life and a plan for everybody's life. So it, I, I go back to that moment um, at music camp, actually it was, um, where God spoke to me. But then I spent about the next eight years running in the opposite direction because I, I was too afraid. <laughs> and um, I think I really felt that if I was going to be a minister, I would have liked to have a companion with me as well and I've met Leanne and together we decided let's go into the college and it's what God had called us to do. Do you think uh, because of your officership now or full-time ministerial duties for those that might not have a Salvation Army background do you think that affects the way that you write music? Do you write music differently because of because of that? Mm, yeah I have thought about that I think it probably influences me without realising because I'm as a, as a meeting leader and as somebody who has to deliver a sermon from time to time, I'm, I have to read and I have to learn and I have to study God's word. So it's bound to influence. Um, I do always feel that I could probably say in music something more succinctly than I can with words. I can waffle on a little bit with the English language, but in music I can say something that maybe words can't. So I see that really music as being another opportunity to write a sermon and to teach people or to encourage people or bring a certain message. Um, it's just another way of doing a sermon. So yeah, I think one probably informs the other. And uh, I would imagine most of the people that are listening to this podcast will know your music well. And that you write in lots of different styles, whether it's lighter jazz music to heavier, mm. uh, large brass band pieces, mm. or even more pop sort of music. Is there mm. a particular style that you like to write in the most? Well, uh, I probably have had most success with marches, to be honest with you, because I, I, and I, I would give thanks to guys like Les Condon and Norman Bearcroft for that, because when you look at how they write a march, I've been able to go to their scores and see oh yeah, if the bass is just played a note in that gap, that's a good bit of counterpoint. I've been able to draw from their scores, and I've been, I think I've been able to successfully work out the ingredients of a march. Um, as for things like swing or, or larger scale works, they're just how I'm inspired, really, or how I'm feeling. I'm really, uh, I'm a project man, and if I get an idea, I just have to see it through to completion, and then the next project could be something totally different, and I'll see that through to completion before I go into the next one, but... 
Yeah, no particular genre, I don't think, but people will probably think of marches when they think of me, I guess. Is there any style that you struggle to write in that you'd like to write in, or that you haven't yet written in? Um, I've not written so much in the meditative genre. Um, a couple of pieces, and thankfully, have turned out okay. So I think one thing you learn more in, in life generally as a life lesson but also as a composer is that less is more you know and that you don't need a lot of notes to say something um i was i'm a victim of the sibelius generation you know i i was writing before so sibelius came along so i've still got the dent in my finger from holding a pen for 18 hours at a time but um when sibelius came you can get a a rush of blood to the head and you just fill the score with notes. So I'm defi- I've definitely been a victim of that, and certainly music from around the turn of the century. Uh, that makes you say, old, sound old when you say <laughs> the turn of the century. But going back to the year 2000, I can see there were more notes than there needed to be. And so as time has gone on, I've, I've begun to try and do less is more, and that, I think, will lead me, hopefully, more into the meditative uh, genre. Um, for me, some of my favourite works of yours have uh, formed the Eternity Trilogy, which is made up mm. of Escape Velocity, Fusion and mm. Skydance. So yeah. I'd like to pick your brains a little bit mm. about the inspiration between these works, what the individual right. story is, and yeah. the story as a whole. Yeah, I think um, what happens when you're an officer is you get captivated by a certain um, theme in scripture, and at that particular time I think I was just drawn to the idea of the afterlife, you know, and... Uh, escape velocity is all about how we long to escape this world. You know, we feel trapped by, especially the business of our culture here in the West. So I, uh, that music came. The Amsterdam staff band wanted uh, a piece. I think it was for the for the ISB 120 um, celebrations. They played it around that time anyway. Um, so I had this idea, and that's when Escape Velocity. I'd been toying with the idea for a number of years, and now I had an excuse to actually put it down. So that's how that one came about. Fusion came about because of ISB 120, and I wanted to have something for the staff band, but I was a bit late to the party, and Steve had already picked his repertoire. So I wrote that off my own back, but he did take it to TMS that year, and there's a great recording. I don't know whether you're, you're on it, Matthew, but uh, they, they did play it, and it's really, really good. Yes, I think it was 2011. Yeah. I wasn't on it. Yeah. I wasn't good enough to be in the A-band then, oh, but it's my see. first ever year yeah, at it's TMS. A terrific <laughs> presentation. It was, absolutely. And then Sky, so Fusion is about then what happens when you get to heaven. You're united. You're, you know, there's this fusion between you and Christ. And then Skydance is, is the party that happens afterwards, so... Having a Northern Irish wife, I was sort of uh, drawn to the Celtic angle there, if you like, and Fusion takes the Sydney Carter song, Some of the Dance, and puts it in a Celtic style. But it's really about us living in eternity with Jesus and the dance continues into eternity. So that's where Skydance came from. So we've also had a question sent in for you, and this question comes from Nigel Hills. And it's, it goes a bit like this. Can you confirm that your experience on the back row of the ISB and the spiritual nurturing received was instrumental in your decision to enter the training college? Well, I don't think I can confirm or deny that, to be honest with you. Uh, I had a great time sitting on the back row with Nigel. When I first joined the band, he was my mentor. Some people would say, is that a good thing? But yes, I think it was. Uh, Nigel was a good guy and... uh, Married to group, lovely family, and he's been a key part of Harpenden Corps. So I, I was, Nigel actually encouraged me quite a lot, probably more than he would realise. Um, and as I moved up the bench, I was able to sit in between Nigel and Martin Bryant, who's still there. I think he's about 150 years old now, but uh, he's been there a long time. And uh, we had a great time. So yeah, musically, it was great, great in terms of fellowship. But I think regardless of the staff band, God had a plan for my life, and it meant I needed to be taken off that back row for perhaps even greater things, who knows. But, yeah, I'm thankful for my time with Nigel and the other guys. And now we move on to some more quirky, quick-fire questions. Okay. So, uh, let's, let's jump right in. Um, what's your shoe size? Eight. Eight, brilliant. Uh, if you were a hat, what hat would you be and why? I'm a baseball cap guy okay. because I just like to keep myself a little bit hidden sometimes okay. when out in public. Do you, would you wear it peak forwards or back to front? It's peak forwards. Peak forwards. Okay. Um, favourite fruit? Orange. Favourite painter? Oh, I was going to say Debussy, but he painted in music, Ooh. right? So, uh, but French Impressionist, so uh, Monet, let's say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, favourite Salvation Army composer? 
Uh, Redhead, Robert Redhead. Favourite non-Salvation Army composer? Um, I'll go for Alan Silvestri. Uh, what's your go-to Bible translation? Um, I stick with NIV. Yeah, works for me. New Living Translation gives a good angle sometimes, but NIV, nine times out of ten. Excellent. And have you got a favourite verse in Scripture? Yeah, for me it's been Philippians 4.13. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In your opinion, what was the most important era in Salvation Army music? I think it's going to be the 60s, coming into the 70s, because we had the iconic pieces like Present Age, Easter Glory, um, we've had Ratcliffe Highway, we've had the Holy War, 60s and 70s, so I think that was probably, people would say that was the zenith of Salvation Army music, but I, I would say it's important because we saw the most groundbreaking pieces from that time. Next question. What does zenith mean? <laughs> they make windows. <laughs> okay, yeah. great. Oh, I'm glad. Now I know. That's, that's for me, not the listeners. Yeah. Um, what's your favourite sandwich filling? Prawn cocktail or prawns in a sandwich, yeah. Okay, seafood. Very nice. Mm. Um, what's your favourite piece that you've ever written? Um, I think I would probably go to Fusion. Um you know, the middle one of that Eternity trilogy it just seemed to really work and people have liked it. So I'd say I'm quite pleased with that one. Excellent. Um, what's the least favourite piece you've ever written? Oh, gosh. Um, I've got a whole list. So which <laughs> one do you want? Um, I don't really like uh, Escape Velocity, actually, the first, because I feel it's a lot of pain for not a lot of gain, you know, and I think there's too many notes in it. If I'd like to, like to do that again, Escape Velocity version 2, Perhaps when I'm nearer the grave, I don't know, but yeah, it might come in the future. Uh, have you got a favourite water sport? Water sport? Yeah. Uh, well, I love Paris ending. Should, okay. do, do you call that when you're on the back of a boat? Oh, I've nice. done it once or maybe twice. Yeah. Uh, but maybe jet skiing would be a, a close second. I've done that a couple of times. Very nice. Yeah. Um, BBC iPlayer or Netflix? iPlayer. Peter or Paul? Paul. I'm sure Peter Crouch will be absolutely gutted there. Um, best courier service? Uh, Deliveroo. Okay. Ooh, tasty. Uh, if you were an Olympic athlete, which sport would you compete in? I would compete in watching sport on TV. Excellent. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. there'll be an Olympics for that soon. <laughs> um, Favourite articulation? Uh, are we talking musically? Okay. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Favourite musical articulation, let's go for the Martellato. Oh, very nice. Um, can you describe to me the offside rule in football in three words? No, I can't. Brilliant. Have you ever broken a bone? No. Have you ever made anyone cry? Yes. Okay, I won't ask anymore. <laughs> and uh, who's the most famous person you've ever met, and what did they smell like? Oh, well, you know what? Um, probably Princess Diana. I don't know what she smelled like, but she looked absolutely love, uh, lovely. And it, that was the first time I met Paul Sharman because we were playing in a brass ensemble together in a hotel on Regent's Park. So yeah, there right. you go. She looked lovely. I don't know what she smelled like. Uh, well, I have to mark you down for that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. And thank you ever so much for your time joining us on the podcast today. It's a been pleasure. an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So in today's episode, we're going to be doing a musical analysis of Ray Steadman Allen's The Holy War. We're going to be using the original Bernard Adams recording from 1965 at the Albert Hall uh, to play examples during this podcast. And I'm joined by Dr. Howard Evans. As we go through this piece of music, we're going to be following this score. Uh, you may find it useful to follow a score yourself, and you can download a score from the Salvation Army Music Index online and I believe there are even some discount codes for fully scored listeners. Don't say we don't look after you. To start us off Howard, can you give us a bit of a background to the piece of music and when it was written and how it changed over time? That's a really interesting question and we could probably spend most of the time of the discussion going through that. Um, I think we tend to think of RSA as being able to just write and get it all down. I think the fascinating thing with the Holy War. Um, I, I don't know how I came across some of these things, um, but some time ago I was sent an original version of a recording as far back as 1958. It was while RSA was still with the Tottenham Citadel Band 
and the initial draft and first version of Holy War was actually played through by the then Tottenham Citadel Band. And there is, it sounds as though it might have been an old reel-to-reel because it gets a bit squeaky (laughs) at times, but there is an old, uh, there is a version of the original uh, Holy War that RSA tried out. If you read RSA's uh, biography, it's actually detailed in there that he did in fact do that and that that is actually verified um, it, for me it's kind of always important to try and make sure that Salvation Army wise we're not just always talking anecdotally but it is actually verified in RSA's biography that he was working on it as far back as 1958 also in the biography it's also detailed that in the early 60s uh, Gordon Hill mentions the fact that uh, Ray turned up um, with uh, a second version of the Holy War at a staff band rehearsal I don't know whether there's any record of that uh, that exists anywhere, but the original certainly exists. So by 1965 and um, the sort of final version of this piece, we actually get to something that Ray has possibly been working on for quite a long time. Um, People talk about this particular composition in terms of its integrity, the way it all seems absolutely right, and yet... It's fascinating in that even for somebody of RSA's mind, there was obviously a huge compositional process to go through to get it right and to get it to what we actually see on the printed score these days. Um, It's just a pity we obviously can't go back and talk to Ray about those processes and exactly what happened and how he arrived at those conclusions. The interesting thing from the original recording that I've obviously listened to and compared with the new score is that there are huge chunks of the original that are completely jettisoned. There are chunks that appear in the Holy War as it is printed, but they're in a completely different place. And this is pure programmatic music. It's telling a story and it's based on the John Bunyan book, The Holy War. Could you tell us perhaps a little bit about the storyline that this music is following? Well, the storyline, it's its about Mansoul and his journey um, through life and through the town. I forget what the name of the town is. In fact, the interesting thing about preparing for this was that I decided that I actually needed to read Bunyan's The Holy War. So yesterday, I actually just ordered a copy so that I have more of an understanding of what's actually going on here. Because I, like, I think we've all read Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, that's what RSA says in the notes. And yes. he gives the programmatic description at the beginning. Um, he does talk about the style being sort of quite heavy, but is the number of allegorical characters uh, linking... A lot of it links to the words... Uh, of Paul and uh, we're dealing with the town of Mansoul which is in divine keeping but Diabolus occupies the town and we find all sorts of other characters there's great names Captain's Judgment, Captain Conviction, the Lord Mayor Incredulity, Mr Lustings, uh, some Diabolonians it's it's kind of fascinating language Mm. that's very very descriptive Um, RSA does say that he doesn't necessarily follow the kind of sort of story of the book. There's a sense in which it represents certain facets. It does have a sense of climax in terms of where it's going, but it's not a complete programmatic description of the story of the book. But that's its background and where it comes from. And I hope in days to come I find out a little bit more about that. Fantastic. And this piece is performed, first of all, at the Royal Albert Hall, in 1965, I believe, celebrating the centenary of the Salvation Army. Um, It didn't go down that smoothly with some people. There was a standing ovation for the piece, but there was also quite a lot of criticism on behalf of this music being so avant-garde for the time. There was. When you look at it these days, you kind of sort of wonder what was avant-garde. There's the famous chord that comes uh, in letter O for the end of that section before the final sort of triumphant little bit, uh, that sort of, uh, that huge discord that RSA builds up through there um, that he uses. And yet, actually, when you listen to it, a lot of the music is not discordant. I think the element that probably takes people by surprise is the sort of, the, the space of some of the melodic intervals. Unlike that, the opening motif. 
I suspect that that kind of language at that time and, and these slightly more awkward intervals, both to sing, if you like, and to play, sort of make it more difficult. Programmatically, there is so much to hang your thoughts on. I don't get why you can't follow where it's going. Although something that is as complex and as detailed as this on first hearing requires work and study and understanding to get to know and and to love it. You can't, in terms of the Luther chorale, you can't get more diatonic than I'm Festerberg, can you? What's the issue with it? <laughs> and so in that way, the kind of reactions at the time, kind of historically looking back at it now, it's kind of fascinating to understand why some of that reaction was there to this to, to this particular music. I suppose because the tunes and the melodic input is far more motivic derived on kind of almost a symphonic scale makes it very different for some of the listeners of that day to kind of sort of be able to appreciate and to understand. Thanks. And it's it's just film music really, isn't it now? You wouldn't bat an eyelid if John Williams, Sam Simmer did this similar thing in music nowadays it just shows how much no, it's changed it, it, it is although it is. I, I would go with the film music in fact um, the best film music is very motivic developed and is fascinating in terms of the way it kind of sort of from, from my point of view I think um, in kind of music circles some people would um, look at some of the development of film music as having come from sort of Wagner and the ring cycle and the sort of motivic aspects that appear with certain characters in highly developed film music you actually still get that you can almost see that as an extension of that and in that way you can see RSA's work in that line as being kind of highly developed in that kind of way uh, just I'm just very careful how I would use use the term film music because I think it covers a multitude yes, of sins. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. that's, that's, that's a, a big umbrella term. Uh, let's actually delve into the music now and uh, go through the score. us a bit through what happens in the music well in the music we're, we're looking at the powers of the good the sense of divine security there's a whole kind of um how can i put it there's a sort of strength to these opening motives and he introduces these these motives the the motive of the, of the fourth uh, going up we have the, the sort of motive going down which uh, and and this is where he starts to use all of these particular motives and these motive cells and 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 the bass figure in the second bar and the fanfare figure in the trombones become kind of really important motives uh, uh, as far as as far as the music is concerned and the way that they're actually developed fantastic and it's interesting to note, uh, I've offended percussionists in the past on this podcast, but uh, RSA does say in the score notes that percussion is absolutely vital to this piece of music. Yep. And it's really used heavily throughout. So after we've had that grand opening, we move into letter A. Could you talk us through what happens in letter A? Letter A is, uh, is, is interesting. On a structural level, uh, we can probably and um, possibly identify this. You've got the introduction that starts at, uh, you know, right at the beginning. And then into letter A, kind of A through letter C, we can talk about kind of sort of being musically, we can talk about it being the exposition of the work, whereby we get the major themes. We get the major theme, we get the, the faith theme, uh, letter A, which is presented in the basis, which is an inversion. And this is the thing, everything seems to come from somewhere. It's not just kind of arbitrary. And, and, and that, for me, is fascinating. And I think from a listener's point of view, even if you don't know that or understand that, that's why sometimes the music seems so integrated, because of the relationship that comes. So we, we get the faith motive that comes through at, uh, at letter A and is then also developed at letter B. Uh, we get it in the trombones, but it's an inversion 
of that opening theme. It almost feels as though if you're setting out on your journey, everything's great, everything's good, and, and you're, you're setting out on your journey through there. And, and through here, the interesting thing, when you analyse the score, I mean, I've got mine marked up, you've got lots of canonic imitation. Uh, you get sort of three-bar introduction at letter A, then you get the tune in the baritone euphoniums for four bars, then you get the sort of uh, modulatory, and you get uh, uh, the tune appearing in, in a kind of, uh, in just a very slightly different version if you look at the actual notation in the first bar, in the, in, in the horns and the first baritone. Then it gets compressed, which sort of gives it a sense of energy. You get a two-bar phrase in the horns, taken up by a two-bar phrase, in the baritones, euphoniums, which kind of sort of seems to move the music on the way you get all those canonic imitations. He shortens, he takes the opening fragment and then, and then uses that and gets the music to move forward through there. Get a B, we have the faith theme come again through the trombones. And, and again, it keeps getting taken up with interjections and what we get at letter B, ba da ba bi ba bam, you get that fragment, which if you don't know it, it's easier, it's really interesting when you look later. Mm. And this is why, as far as the compositional process is concerned, that's really interesting. What came first? So if the tune, and if the chorale tune that he wanted to be central, which actually ends up uh, in, the, in the final version, ends up being kind of part of the central part uh, of the work we get this foreshadowing of it here. When RSA mapped this out, did he know that? And, and, and is that why you get that foreshadowing? You know, how much of that is intentional? Where was it in the compositional process? So, you know, was this part of the writing in terms of the integration of that after he'd already decided exactly what was going on there? There's a huge mixture of what's actually happening. But you get the, in the accompaniment that you get the foreshadowing of that. Uh, let us see again, you also get those chorale illusions. Fantastic. Big, big, big cornet stuff coming. So, you know, as well as the, the main faith theme still coming through there. Excellent. So that brings us, as you said, to letter C, where we have a bit more of a substantial reference to the Lutheran chorale, Ein Festerberg. Yep. Could you tell us a bit about the history of that tune, Ein Festerberg? I mean, the, the main aspect of, of this is that. I suppose contextually, the interesting thing is we're, we're, we're looking at Luther, Luther's chorale, and a whole new concept um, of worship and exactly what was happening. And, and this Luther chorale almost kind of sort of, I suppose you're making me think about it, maybe it kind of sort of takes us into the period of sort of Bunyan's actual book hmm. there's a kind of sort of you know the whole allegorical thing with with Bunyan's book and where that comes from maybe it's almost a period piece in the music there hmm. <laughs> does he say something about it in there uh, I was just going to read the words associated it from it are um, I've taken from Psalm 46 it's a safe stronghold our God is still a trusty shield and weapon he'll help us clear from all the ill that hath us now o'ertaken the ancient prince of hell hath risen with purpose fell. Strong male of craft and power he weareth in this hour. On earth is not his fellow. So quite old-fashioned It's very old. It's very old-fashioned words. Um, I have actually... I did this piece a number of years ago for one of... I forget which celebration it was with, with Boscombe. And to make sense of playing this piece later on in the programme, we actually started with the song at uh, an earlier point in the programme. And, and even the latest versions that we have in our songbooks can appear a little bit old-fashioned. But it's that whole concept. If, if, if this whole opening, uh, which we said right at the beginning, it's the powers of good, it's that whole sense of divine security, those chorale allusions give that whole sense of strength and divine security. And that's exactly what those words say. And, and that's, uh, I guess, that's the programmatic reason as well as the motivic reason. I think that's where those things always combine 
in that kind of way uh, to create the kind of uh, the tautness of the composition and works in that way. through composed and not in distinct movements. At letter D we move into uh, what could be seen as the second part of this piece which Reister Malin describes as the satanic wiles and threats. That's what I've got written in my score, Old Serpent. Mm. He uses the description of the Old Serpent and the satanic wiles. From a, from a compositional, from a programmatic point of view, yes. The interesting thing is um, it, it's also suggested, I mean if people are interested in actually reading up a very detailed analysis of this, there are two sources that they can go to. RSA's biography, in the appendices, there's a really, really good analysis uh, by um, Dudley Bright. Great army writer, composer, in that kind of way, super trombone player, and also happens to be a good friend. But Dudley's, Dudley's analysis is absolutely super. The other book has to be Ron Holtz's second book, uh, History of Salvation Army Bands, uh, because in one of the chapters there, in the large-scale concert works, he also gives an analysis of RSA's Holy War. They both identify the same kinds of things. Um, Dudley's, I find, is just slightly more detailed in that Dudley finds more musical cells out of some of the motives and the way some of those are developed and and can actually and identifies a lot of very small motivic figures that come throughout the work and it makes logical sense when you read his analysis to where some of these small cells have come from the interesting thing i think is is that uh, there could there is a suggestion that letter d because um when we're talking about kind of sort of sonata form as such which is often and the whole concept of sort of symphonic form as well you're often talking about expositions Mm. there's almost a suggestion that this actually could be your contrasting second subject here at letter d so having had the first subject and those the faith motive here is your completely contrasting second subject on a symphonic level it works it's exactly that and it's this duet um sort of slightly levacious i think possibly um, it's this coaxing term that he uses in the rubato and it's it's almost that we're starting to be tempted by serpent wiles here. I mean, Ray in his notes talks about the illusion of the serpent. As soon as we think about that, the picture that we have in our mind is the serpent in the Garden of Eden and the serpent beguiling the woman and the woman beguiling the man. And so I'm not whether sure whether the cornet or the trombone is the serpent. You can make <laughs> up your own conclusions Definitely on that. Definitely go trombone. But while I, I don't think I'm plucking things out of the air there, raised mm. descriptions and those kind of things. So that whole symphonic level of the two completely contrasting, often a second subject is a completely contrasting subject that gives you new material uh, to develop you have that here and Ray's allusion to the serpent tells you exactly I think what this is meant to be and in the tow- town of Mansoul and exactly what's going on So then we move through uh, that more chromatic section and continue it uh, at letter E. Could you talk us through what happens here musically? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the way he sort of, again, develops these these motifs. What we get here at letter E is we get that ti-da-pam-pa-pam. We get the development of that at letter E, and we actually get Mansoul turned upside down almost. Ti-da-pam-pam. You can see the intervals of that and the way that works. And the way that, that, that he kind of sort of reverses some of those elements that we've had earlier to kind of sort of form the basis and, and to use this as some of the tunes 
through here. The interesting thing, I've spoken a couple of times about this, and, and this is where this is so much more highly developed. The solo in the original version, uh, this starts off a little bit like this, but goes off in a completely different direction as far as the solo is concerned here. It's one of the kind of sort of fascinating things. The genesis of this particular section is there in the original version, but it's not quite developed in the way that it is here. And I think this is developed into a longer section and a, and a longer dialogue the way he moves through here. Moving on towards letter F, just before we get to F, once again in the baritones we have a reference to the Lutheran chorale, um, and we have this change in music. Can yep. you describe this change and what this means well, to the story? Well, we almost have a sort of little... <clears throat> sometimes when you move musically from one thing to another, you just need a kind of sort of almost... It's almost like a little bit of reflection as to what's going on through here. Um <clears throat> And again, you, I think there are just so many motivic little bits that come from all over the place. You get that diminished fourth interval before F that we've had before, that we have at the beginning with the R tempo. You have that kind of pleading motif here in the, in the solo cornet that we then get in, in the flugel that then moves us into a new section, uh, this kind of threatening menace, this violence and menace. This section appears to be completely missing from from the original. And then uh, letter G, it's really interesting. What we get, which is like the central section of this, this sort of development in, in into the kind of sort of development and into the battle bit, the, where we get the moment of reflection and the closing, if you like, of the exposition with the chorale and then moves into the battle bit. This particular section with the chorale comes very much later it, the material that we actually have that's marked in the score here, letter R, um, which is quite late on, um, af it's after that material that we that we that we get some of the the chorale material that we hear right here in the middle. Really interesting kind of sort of juxtaposition and change in terms of where some of this originally was. We move into this with the kind of sort of motivic stuff. We have that same interval in the trombone to take us into letter G. You get the sense of something happening in the background of letter F. You get the reflection of the chorale uh, and beautiful, lovely little uh, harmonizations of the chorale and the scoring of this and the way this actually works. Um, absolutely super through there. Um, and then it's all suddenly uh, messed up by the battle and the war and the development. Again, some of this little bit of letter H is there, but he develops it very differently. If you look, it's it, the turmoil and the figures here, the bass figure that we have here. If you take out two of the last, the last two semiquavers of the uh, of the bass motif letter H, and you take uh, the opening crotchet tied to the first semiquaver, the second semiquaver, and then the next crotchet. Again, you get that whole motivic development whereby that's actually a, man, a, a Mansoul figure right from the beginning, but he's developed it in a different way. Those two extra notes kind of sort of hide it to a degree, but the intrinsic intervals are there and he develops it in a different way and takes us and it becomes kind of, it sets us off on that battle theme and again sort of get that, that figure sort of gets answered uh, uh, in some of the upper parts in the way that he kind of sort of takes us into this battle through here. And the storyline, as we said, this piece is based on the, the Holy War, the book. Yep. Do you think there could be seen uh, to be parallels between the narrative of this book and our lives as Christians as well? Do you think that might be uh, part of the inspiration for I, this piece I, of music? I think this, I think this piece, for me, this piece is very much in what I would call the Salvation Army tradition of programmatic pieces that give us an overall picture 
um, an overall story that is specific in its own way, but has so much relevance and can be applied in so many other ways. I mean, the other piece that comes to mind that does the same kind of programmatic journey in a different way is Les Condon's Present Age. And I think it's, it's really interesting because where's the later development that we've got of these kind of pieces? Mm. Where are the pieces that we've got that seek to kind of give us these broad stroke pictures that in some ways have their own story and detail. The music, for me, doesn't always depend on that story and the detail, but it's the way it kind of sort of takes you on both a kind of sort of symphonic musical journey that does have its programmatic element, but it's that sense of overarching kind of architecture as to where it takes you that is a logical consequence. I think the compositional process of that is part of that and I think compositional as far as the compositional processes are concerned these days I'm not sure that we have symphonic works like this that do that in quite the same way we have lots of programmatic works mm. and lots of programmatic works that give us an A, B, A structure with an energetic first section a reflective middle section and then uh, a, 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 a reworking or another development that takes us into a big Conclusion, we don't quite have these days, I think, this genre of work that I'm aware of. Please make me aware of it if it's my fault. (laughs) But this kind of overarching sort of structure that takes us on those kind of journeys. And there is very much a Salvation Army tradition of those kind of works. And do you think in Salvation Army music there's still scope for that genre? Or do you think in today's age that genre has had its time and we should be looking at different genres to approach or do you think that there should be a revival of that on a, on, a, on a personal level I would like to think there is still scope for that kind of genre and uh, I wish I had more time for writing I don't actually get physically get enough time for writing the whole process of, of what happens for me takes a long time Fantastic stuff. So I think we'll leave that analysis here for our very first episode. In our next episode, we'll be picking up from where we got to and looking at the rest of the piece. We'll look forward to that. Now we move on to the section that we like to call Band Mastermind. Mm. So Martin, you have exactly one and a half minutes to answer as many questions as you can. And this time is the exact length that it takes the ISB to play Jubilee, minus some repeats. So it is the exact time of one minute thirty. So, Martin Corden, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I'm ready. Your time starts now. In what year did John Mott reform the Household Troops Band? 84. Incorrect. Who revised and rescored William Turkington's Festival March Abel? William Hines. Correct. Who was the founding father of Salvation Army music in Sweden? Pass. Okay, we'll move on to the next question. Who was commonly known as the architect of Salvation Army music? Richard Slater. Incorrect, I'm afraid. Okay. I'd rather have Jesus by William Hines as written for which former trumpet player of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra? Okay. 2S Petrus, which has recently been featured in the band journals, translates as... Lay a garland. Not quite, I'm afraid. Uh, We'll come back to the answers in a minute. What was RSA's only core appointment? Pass. Okay. Who was the Salvation Army's self-proclaimed March King? Uh, Garage. Not no, quite, I'm afraid. Okay. Which RSA piece written for Birmingham Citadel Band recorded on an album of the same name remains unpublished? Pass. <laughs> okay. Uh, what tune is featured throughout the middle section of Kevin Norbury's Odyssey? It's slain. Correct. Robert Redhead was born in which UK city? Manchester. Correct. Isaiah 40 was the National Brass Band test piece in which year? Uh, 96. Correct. Who wrote the festival march, The Proclaimers? Kevin Norbury. Correct. What hymn tune starts RSA's epic day star? Ascalon. Fantastic. And that was perfect timing. Our time is up. So, Martin, that gives you a score of six, which is absolutely average. 
Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> not a bad score, not a bad score. Some tricky questions. Let's just go through the answers for the ones you didn't quite get. It was 1985 for the household troops reformed, so yeah. just one year out. Mm. Uh, Klaus Osterby was known as the founding father of yeah. Salvation Army music in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the architect of Salvation Army music was Fred Hawkes. Okay. And I'd Rather Have Jesus was written for William Scarlet. 2S Petrus translates from Latin as Thou Art Peter. And Sheerness on the Sea was RSA's only core appointments. Oh. Uh, Bramwell Coles is known as the Salvation Army's March King. Mm. And the RSA piece written for Birmingham Sizzle Band, recorded on the album of the same name, was Centrepoint. And then, mm. the rest of the questions, you got correct. Right. So a nice late surge at the end was, once you've settled it? in. Yeah. So those astute listeners may realise that we've reused some of the questions there. Um, because of the way we're recording these, some of the episodes haven't been released yet, so Martin won't have heard those questions, evidently. No, <laughs> uh, so that's why we're just reusing some of the questions to make it a bit more of a fair comparison and to really uh, economise the questions I do have. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Matthew. Okay, thank you once again for joining us. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Fully Scored. As always, if you have any questions about anything we've discussed today or any other queries we can answer in a later episode, please tweet us. Our Twitter handle is at Fully Scored. You can also follow us on Instagram or the Salvation Army music editorial page on Facebook to keep updated with all the latest stuff thank you once again to martin for joining us today it's been a real pleasure is there anything you'd like to add before we finish well i think i'll just finish by saying despite what people say i think you're okay matthew (laughs) thank you you're welcome (laughs) and uh, thanks also to our producer simon gash for his work editing out all the bits where we were completely rubbish organizing guests and our tours like today to cambridge and just keeping us generally in check Thank you also to the team of band nerds who helped with the band mastermind trivia, so you can thank them, not me. And uh, thank you to you, the listener, for listening, because if you weren't listening, you wouldn't be called the listener. Goodbye and God bless. Mm-hmm.